Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series for the spring and summer is called Conversations. Each week we will take a topic and have members of our congregation talk about it in a pre-taped interview. These conversations are not scripted, and they form the foundation of the sermon being spoken about that day. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. The scripture reading is from Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, the word of Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. This again is another letter from Paul. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home In the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. We are doing our conversation sermon series, and today we are talking about the concept of afterlife. And so what we'll do is we'll begin with our pre-recorded conversation between members of our congregation and see what they had to say about afterlife. How come I always have to be first? I'll I'll go first if you'd like. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What happens after we die? Go to heaven. Go to heaven? Go to heaven. What do you think that looks like? I think it's a beautiful place where everything is perfect. I think we, like, rise to heaven and, like, anything that, like, happened that was, like, really fun in our family would, like, move on through, like, our family to family. I think that we die and then we go to heaven and then we, like, we sit with God, kind of, and Everyone, like, lives together in heaven. And to be honest, for me, I'm not sure if if it's that or 
if it's the more logical thing that happens is that once you die, your brain just turns off and like you sort of cease to exist. I believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in hell. I believe in some sort of form of heaven. It's my belief that a physical transition takes place. It's almost a physical sort of thing where the soul, like you were saying, the soul leaves and goes somewhere. Um, I believe death is a transition uh, for all of us. I'm, I don't have to fix anything. No, we don't, don't have to cook, we don't have to clean. No. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? It's heavenly. <laughs> what does heaven look like? To me, it's unfathomable. Um, try to imagine a million years. You can't. How can you imagine something that you have absolutely no description of? We don't really know, but it's told to have golden roads and golden fences. It's supposed to be really golden. I, I, Almost like a dream? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a dream, just, just an existence, just some kind of space or a void almost like, mm -hmm. you know, nothing, again, nothing physical. It, it's just kind of out there. Just an existence. I think it's a spiritual thing. I think you are uh, experiencing everything in your soul. When I think of heaven, I think of a total absence of pain, of suffering, um, of conflict. I think of heaven as particularly being in very close contact with God. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Wow, it's like I could spend months thinking about that one. Uh, you know, we're Christian, there's Jewish, you can be Muslim, Buddhist. I kind of like to ask them, were any of us right? <laughs> Is there a right or a wrong? Um, I would ask him how he made the world. Why didn't God just create the earth and populate it with full-grown adults, X number, doesn't increase or decrease, and everybody just lives a decent life. Why are like some people born into families where they don't have anything and maybe the family isn't on, is like unstable, and then why are people like other people born into families that have everything, and it's just like, that seems unfair. Yeah, it seems like there's so much inequality that like is unexplainable. But I want to ask why, I know that it says that suffering is part of life, but why does it have to be so much? Why does it have to be so severe? I would ask him, how disappointed is he that with what we've done to his creation, the way people treat each other, all over the world. Mm -hmm. The way we've treated our environment. That we haven't taken care of his creation. Who gets to go to heaven? In the Bible, um, it, it says that the people that believe in God and Jesus and everybody will, will go to heaven. Heaven is promised to everyone who believes but I also think that we can't really know what's in someone's heart, and only God knows that. So to, to say that, you know, who gets to go to heaven, it's not for us to say. When I was younger and growing up in the church, it was, 
whoever believes in Jesus Christ and that he died for your sins, they're the ones that get to go to heaven. Um, but I've kind of now evolved more into, well, if we're all God's people, all God's children, then all are welcomed into heaven. Well, I personally think that anyone should who lives a good life. Like, I don't think it should be limited to Christians. Like, I think, well, like, regardless of religion, if you're just a good person at heart, you should go to heaven and, or if you're willing to be a good person, you should go to heaven. I think we're going to be surprised <laughs> who's there. Yeah, I think so too. In what way? Well, because we're so quick to judge here. But when we experience a perfect God, he's got other ideas. All right, so today we're talking about what happens to us when we die. And of course, since none of us really knows what happens when we die, everything we're going to be talking about in this sermon is total and complete speculation. But that said, we follow a faith that has some pretty direct things that it says about what happens to us when we die. It makes some pretty amazing claims. And so I want to look at both sides of this equation. I want to look at what does the Judeo-Christian tradition say about what happens to us when we die? Then on the flip side, I want to look at what does science have to say to, about what happens when we die? What does scientific evidence show us? And I think to begin this discussion, I want to go back to something that Natalie Marr and Ryan Marr were saying at the beginning. So when they asked them that question, right, Natalie says, well, I think you go to heaven to be with God. And what's Ryan say? Ryan says, well, I don't know if it's that, or if it's the more logical thing, which is that, that when you die, your brain shuts down and you just cease to exist. And really, there's only two options, right? There's only two options on the table here. It's not that complicated with those options. One is you die and the lights turn off and that's it. There's nothing more to it than that. And in that situation, in that scenario, what happens is you get put in the ground and your body, it decays and eventually your atoms will be reconstituted to something different. But the other way it could go, that's a little bit more complicated, wouldn't you agree? Because we don't really know, and it is speculative. But most people who are willing to go down that road, who believe that there is some consciousness beyond this life, what we say and what we tend to believe is that there is something distinctly spiritual inside of us that separates from the body and lives on after we die. Now, a lot of people have different ways of defining that spiritual self, but what's the word we tend to use to define that? What do we say? Soul, right? That's the word we use. Word soul comes from the Greek word psyche, which literally means life, spirit, or consciousness, but is probably best translated as breath. And the reason why it's best translated as breath is because the ancient Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, they believed that the soul was the animating factor in the body. And they believed that without the soul, if the soul was taken away from the body, the body could no longer live. They also believed that the soul is that part of the human being which is immortal, that lives on forever. 
And so that's why when the soul leaves the body, it can continue living past when the body dies. <coughs> Excuse me. So this concept of the soul, it's been around for nearly 2,500 years. That's when the Greeks came up with it, about 2,500 years ago. And today, I would say that most people still subscribe to that notion. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? 2,500 years ago, this idea, it gets formed and it's just stuck. And one of the reasons why it's stuck is because this notion of the soul, it found its way into the Jewish and Christian religions. We saw this, actually, in the scripture we read from 2 Corinthians. So let's just take a quick look at that so you can see what he says here. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... What's the earthly tent? What's he talking about? Body. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, which refers to the soul. So clearly, Paul believes in a soul. And what we can see from this is that the Jews, they inherited this idea of the soul from the Greeks. Fantastic, right? It should be made pretty simple then. Then what should happen is we die... Our soul separates from the body, and we go into the afterlife. That's what the Bible should say, right? Of course, it doesn't say that, which makes it a lot more complicated. It'd be nice if it did. And I've told you all before that the Bible is a little bit of a mess when it comes to talking about afterlife. You think it'd be a bit more clear about this than it is, given what we use it for. But it's not. It's not clear. And to give you a sense of how much of a hodgepodge it can be, let's take a look at that first Thessalonians text. Now, in that first Thessalonians text, what he's talking about here is he's describing the idea of what's going to occur when Jesus returns. So Christians, in our Apostles' Creed, which we say in here every couple of weeks, you see that there is this belief that Jesus will come back. And this is talking about what happens when he comes back. This is Paul's version of that. So let's read this. For the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sounds of God's trumpet, It's going to be very musical when it happens. We'll descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, let's break this down, because we've got to understand really what this is talking about. So, Paul believes that Jesus is going to come from heaven. Now, if you understand the mentality, the context of how they thought at this time, They believed that heaven was a place that you could literally access if you could get high enough in the sky. They believed that there were stairs that you could climb that would allow you to come to a door that would lead into heaven. And so what they believe, and what Paul's talking about here, is is that Jesus will literally walk out of this door. He's going to walk down the steps. He's going to step off of the edge, and he'll be floating in the air like Superman above the earth. And then... That will trigger an event, the resurrection, in which everybody who has ever existed in the history of the world will be brought back to life in bodily form. Meaning that God will literally rebuild every single person who has ever existed. And then, if you are chosen, meaning God loves you, you will be lifted up in the air and taken to be with Jesus in heaven. I don't think I need to go out on too much of a limb to say that probably most of you in here don't think that's what's going to happen when you die. Am I right about that? I'm not trying to judge anybody who does. I'm just saying to most of you in here, I would assume most of you in here probably don't believe that. You probably believe what we read or what we heard in the video, right? What did we see in the video? What did they say? They said, well, you die and your soul 
it goes to heaven, or if you've been bad, maybe it goes to hell, right? But let's assume for a second that Paul's right, what he says here in 1 Thessalonians, that he's correct. So it raises some interesting questions about what happens to your soul. So let's say he's right, that there's this whole bodily resurrection thing that goes on, and everybody's going to be brought back to life. So when you die, like let's say you die right now, what happens to your soul in the meantime? Where does it go? Do you just kind of, are you just kind of dormant for a while, and then you wake up, and it's been like 10,000 years, and you're like, whoa, it's the resurrection. We're all back now. And you get stuck back in your body, and that's it? Or is it you go to heaven, and then God takes your soul and sends it back down into your resurrected body later? And the fact is, the Bible doesn't tell us any of this. Believe me, I've looked and searched. It's not in there. It doesn't give you specific answers to these questions. And for a long time, I thought those were really important. And then I realized, as I kind of got into the church and talked to people, I realized, well, nobody really thinks that way. Like, most people don't even know that this verse exists and don't even know what it's about. And so what they believe is that the body, when it dies, the soul goes to heaven, right? That's kind of how people feel about it. And this whole idea of the resurrection, which we're seeing right here, they kind of discount that and they say, ah, that doesn't really matter. Even though that's the thing that's in the Bible and the other way around isn't really in there in the same way. So this raises a question for me. Why is it that we are drawn to this idea of the immortality of the soul and we are not drawn to the idea of the immortality of the body? Because if you look at them both objectively, they're both crazy, like they both don't make any sense logically, but yet we like one over the other. So the question is, why? And I think that the answer can actually be found in a phenomena known as near-death experience, or shortened NDE. So, the first person to ever write extensively about near-death experiences was a physician named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Kubler-Ross, she was a psychiatrist who worked closely with patients who were terminally ill. And when she was coming into medicine in the 1960s, doctors didn't really know what to do with death and dying. The doctor's job was to keep you alive, to keep you healthy. And if the regimen they were giving you, if it wasn't working, then they felt as though that they were a failure. And so what they would do once the diagnosis was fatal is they would essentially abandon you. They would let you go to this dark part of the hospital where you would just languish there until the disease took its course and you died. Well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she was one of the first doctors to go out there and just to ask these people who had a terminal diagnosis, hey, how are you feeling? Is there anything we can do for you to make you feel better? How can we make you feel more comfortable, right? Which is exactly what happens today. She started that whole movement. And what she realized was that doctors needed to be trained on how to deal with death and dying. They didn't really understand how to do this naturally. And so from all of her work in hospitals and in classrooms, she wrote a book called On Death and Dying which talked about all manner of issues related to death. Now, if you've never heard of this book before, you still know something from it, because in this book she develops the five stages of grief, which everybody's aware of. You may not know what the five stages of grief are, but you're aware that that exists. And this is where it comes from, is in this book. This book put her on the map, and it made her one of the most important physicians of the 20th century. Interestingly, though, at the end of this book, in the original manuscript there was another chapter that wasn't included in the final publication. 
And this chapter, it talked about these very strange incidents where she had interactions with patients that were telling her very strange things that had happened to them. For instance, one example is from a young girl who had leukemia. Now, in the 1960s, if you had leukemia, it was a death sentence. They didn't have a lot of the treatments that they have today. And so Kubler-Ross, she goes into this young girl's room, and she says, how are you doing? And the girl says, a man was here to visit me. And as she asks about this man, she realizes that this guy was not a doctor, and she becomes very concerned because clearly this man could have just hurt her. And she goes to the parents, and she says, I'm so sorry for this lapse in security We will make sure it never happens again. And she's telling the mother about what happened. And the mom becomes interested. And she says, tell me a little bit more about this. She says, you know, it's kind of strange because it sounds like you're describing my brother, her uncle, who died before she was born. And the clothes that you're saying he was wearing, those are the exact clothes that he was wearing when he died. And there's no way she could have known that. Another example came from a woman known as Mrs. Schwartz. Mrs. Schwartz had Hodgkin's disease, and she was being wheeled off an elevator one day in a hospital. She goes into cardiac arrest. And when she's revived, she speaks to Kubler-Ross, and she says, I witnessed this entire scene from the ceiling of the elevator. And I even floated down behind a med student who was taking notes. So in the 1960s, if you were a med student... You weren't allowed to interact. You just kind of had to sit there and objectively, coldly take notes on what was going on. And so she said, I saw what he was doing, and I read everything that he wrote, and he was even doodling at the top of the page. And so Kubler-Ross is clearly very skeptical of this. So she goes and she finds the med student. She gets his notes, and indeed, it's exactly what she said. She knew everything that he'd written on the page, and the doodles were absolutely correct. She shouldn't have been able to know that, from laying in a hospital bed where she was while she was having cardiac arrest. Why I find Kubler-Ross's work to be so interesting and so important is because when she was writing these things down, she wasn't trying to prove that there was an afterlife. Many people who study this stuff today, the near-death experiences, they have a bias. They either want to prove that it's real to show that there's an afterlife, or they want to prove that it's fake because they don't believe in one. But she was just simply writing these things down because she's a doctor, and the patients were telling her these things, and she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to write it down. And so eventually she had enough stories like this that she wanted to put it as a chapter in her book, which they said, don't do that, because people will think you're crazy. So that's why she took it out. Skeptics will tell you that what's happening during a near-death experience is that your brain is literally shutting down, and when it lacks oxygen, there's this cascade of chemical reactions that produce the effects of a near-death experience. But I think that there's a couple of reasons why that seems unlikely to me. One reason why it seems unlikely is because what these people talk about having happened during a near-death experience, it can't exactly be explained as a function of brain death. So, for instance, there was a guy in England who went into cardiac arrest. He was in the hospital. And like Mrs. Schwartz, he rose out of his body and he flew out into the English countryside and he ended up inside of a pub, which, of course is, you know, where the English go when they die. They go to a big pub in the sky. (laughs) So he goes to this pub, and he's walking around inside, and he's listening to people's conversations. And then he's revived. He comes back. And he wonders whether everything that he experienced was just a dream. 
So he goes out and he starts looking, and eventually he finds this pub is real. And he goes inside this pub, and he waits for the locals to come in, and he starts talking to them. And he says, hey, did you have this conversation? Because I feel like I had, I had this experience where you did, and they said, yeah, actually, that's so strange that you, because you clearly weren't here when we had it. And so he explained to them what had occurred. The second reason why near-death experiences are different from what skeptics say is that skeptics will come out and they will say, well, of course, if you're religious, you want a near-death experience to be true because it proves that there's an afterlife. But if you've ever studied near-death experiences, you'll realize it's not all good news for religious people. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. So if you look worldwide... It's about 4% of the world, about 280 million people have had an experience like this, a near-death experience. But what's interesting about this is that only 10% of those people actually go all the way through with it. Like the whole idea, you all know about it, right? You go into the light and all that stuff. It was in my Easter sermon. That was what I did in my Easter sermon. That was a story I talked about. For the 10% who go through, they usually encounter what is known as the being of light. Now, the being of light, what would we call the being of light? What's that? God, right? Now, the being of light is usually accompanied by some people. Those people can be people from your past, family members, friends. But if you're particularly religious, they have found that what happens is a religious figure will appear to you there along with God. So when you have this experience, if you're Christian, who are you going to see? Jesus. If you're Muslim, you're going to see the prophet Muhammad. If you're Jewish, you'll see, let's see if you all know this. You can see who? Moses. Very good. Good. There you go. Nice. All right. So you see Moses. Now, clearly what it shows you is, is that whatever you have been culturally acclimated to want to see, you're going to see that thing. And near-death, people who are skeptical of near-death experiences say, of course that's what you're going to see, because it's all happening in your mind. And when you die, who do you want to see? You want to see that person you've been worshiping your entire life. But let's go in the other direction with that. Let's assume that what they're seeing is actually real. What does that tell us about the experience of heaven? Well, what it tells us is that you don't need to believe in Jesus in order to go to heaven. In fact, you don't have to be of any particular religious tradition whatsoever. Atheists have had this experience before. There's a great book, Proof of Heaven, written by a guy named Eben Alexander. He's a neurosurgeon who had this experience. He was an atheist, didn't believe in any of this stuff. And then he comes back from this experience, and it's amazing. I highly recommend reading the book. The fact is, is that when you look at situations like this, it's not good for religious people, particularly fundamentalists, who will sit and say, well, you need to believe it in a certain way. If you don't believe in Jesus, you'll go to hell, right? That's the concept. But that's not true from a near-death experience. Basically, that disproves that. And so, People who are fundamentalists, they don't like near-death experiences because it totally gets rid of their version of the world and any other religious person who says it's one way. That's the only way you can go. And so what it tells us, if they're real, is that God's a lot more liberal than we are when it comes to admitting people into heaven. But even though God might not care as much about our religions as we do, what I think is very fascinating about NDEs is what they tell us about all the religions in the world, right? They tell us whether or not we're accurate. Because different religions portray God in different ways, don't they? So some religions, they portray God as being angry, vengeful, horribly judgmental. That's in our Old Testament in certain places, isn't it? So what do they see when they get there? Well, almost everybody across the board, doesn't matter who they are, 
They talk about if they get into heaven and if they meet the being of light, they are encompassed by this feeling of total and complete love and acceptance. Every one of them across the board. And this is so powerful and so profound to them that it changes the quality of who they are. They come back. doesn't matter if they're super selfish before they went or if they were giving before. They will come back and they will be loving to a fault. It drives their family crazy when they do this because they'll find people on the street and they'll say, come inside. You need to come into our house. And they're like, you can't just do that with everybody. But they want to show people that same love that they've been shown. Now, that description of love, what kind of God does that sound like? Who described God that way? Did you? Oh, good. I'm glad at least a couple people in here know that. (laughs) Yes, that is the way Jesus described God. Jesus describes God as having no limits in terms of love, of being willing to forgive us no matter what. And what's interesting is that this is kind of supported. So, If you look, there's other places where the NDEs, where they match what happens in our religion. So you've probably heard the concept of judgment, right? Okay, so let's take a look at the scripture real real quick here from 2 Corinthians. This is what he says. For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what they have done or has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is talking about judgment, right? Okay, so for the people who make it through, they get to the other side... Some of them experience what's known as a life review. This was in my Easter sermon. I had the guy in my Easter sermon talk about a life review, right? And the way I described it in my Easter sermon is what happens to them. They see these scenes floating in front of them from their lives. They're all happening simultaneously. They're overlapping with one another. And it's like, they say it's like watching television, but it's much more visceral than real. It's like 3D, holographic. And you feel... All of the emotions from every experience that you see. Not just what you were feeling, but how other people felt. When you hurt them, you can feel how they hurt. And you can see the, how that effect rippled out beyond you. If it's positive, it goes the other way, where it ripples out in positive ways. It's like you're experiencing your entire life in a single instant. But you know what they say, every single person who's been through this? They say they don't feel any judgment from God They only feel judgment from within themselves for these actions that they took to hurt other people. God offers total and complete forgiveness. The reason why I think that we see this parallelism between what we find in religion and these near-death experiences is because I think that some of these ancient people who wrote these texts for us had experiences like this. I don't think the Greeks were guessing when they came up with the idea of the soul. And I don't think Paul was necessarily guessing when he was talking about this. In 2 Corinthians, he actually talks about how he was beaten so badly on several occasions that he almost died. And if some of the things that he's talking about actually happened to him, that's true. He should have been killed. And there wasn't exactly medicine back then to make him feel better. And so he could have had an experience like this. He could have gone to heaven. And when he gets to heaven, who is he going to see? Who does he expect to see there? Jesus. And if he has a life review, right, he's going to be next to Jesus while this is happening. And so he's going to think to himself, well, what's happening? He's before the judgment seat of Christ. This has been happening. These experiences have been happening for thousands of years. It's only in the last 60 years that we have developed... Procedures like CPR and technology to revive people so that it's happening much more frequently than it ever has. 
And I disregard what the skeptics say. I don't think that the religion has influenced near-death experiences. I think it's the other way around. I think near-death experiences have influenced our religions. And this is particularly true of Christianity. Because when you look at what Jesus has to say about God, it's an exact match with what these people are talking about when they meet God in heaven. And to me, that's really comforting. Because what it tells us is, we're not wasting our time. That we're actually on the right track. We're on the right path. I want to end this morning with one last thing. One last thing for you to think about. People who go through a near-death experience, who have gone on to the other side, who have had the life review, they are very conscious of how they treat other people when they come back. And the reason why is because they are now aware of how their words and their actions impact other people. And they know that when they die in the future, they're going to have to go through that all over again. And they don't want to feel the pain of how they've hurt other people. So they're very conscious, they're very aware of how they treat others. In essence, when they come back, what are they doing? They're showing people the love that they have felt from God when they're on the other side. And what does Jesus teach us? What's his core fundamental teaching? You see it in John. He says, love others as God has loved you. In essence, isn't it amazing that this man who we say embodies God's love, who is a reflection of who God is, that his teachings so greatly mirror what these people who have supposedly gone to heaven and actually met God are talking about. I find that to be remarkable. And it also tells me that we are on the right track. Because what do I tell you every week? I end it with every sermon. I say, choose love. Be the light. Change the world. I know some of you are sick of it, but it's going to go on forever because we're going to be talking about it. (laughs) The truth is, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And near-death experiences, if they are any indication, then it tells us that that's exactly what God wants us to do with our short time on this earth. To that I'll say, amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.